morning. It's Christmas season. COVID is going crazy. It's 2020. Welcome to it. It's almost over. And uh, I have little hope that 2021 is going to be much better. But in a lot of ways, I, I'm confident it will. We, um, we have a couple of things to go over real quickly before we get into the word together, which I'm excited to do. Uh, many of you saw the videos or the pictures of the new building uh, the, these past few days. Um, doesn't look like that anymore. We got a ton of work done yesterday, and we got all those uh, incredibly heavy pews out of there, and the carpet and stuff is up in the sanctuary. We're rocking and rolling, guys, and it's very exciting to see transformation happening quickly. Um, of course, it'll slow down as we get to some more detailed work, uh, but we encourage you to keep volunteering and keep giving of your time, uh, give uh, of your financial resources to the best of your ability so that we can keep moving so that we don't get stuck, um, you know, get, get stuck in our progress because of, of finances. Thank you to everybody who's been giving. It's incredible to see uh, God's church come together and get this thing going so that we can do what Jesus placed us here to do, which is to reach people around us with the gospel. Um, Thursday, next Thursday night, not this Thursday now, I'm sorry, next Thursday night, Christmas Eve service, 7 p.m. right here. Uh, would, would love to have you join us if that fits into your family schedule. If that's uh, not going to work, of course, we understand it's a very special day and a great time to be together with family, uh, but it's also a great time to worship. So if you can be here with us, please invite and bring friends and family uh, Thursday evening. Obviously, taking into consideration the COVID situation, uh, I strongly believe there are people who should not be worshiping in person right now, but that's totally up to all of you guys. You know your situation, so please make those decisions accordingly, and uh, we'll continue to worship together. Um, and be praying for the Need Cafe. They had to close down, uh, along with a lot of other businesses, to in-person dining, and so we want them to do well here. They're doing great things in the community, so please be praying for the Need Cafe that, that God would care for them during this, this shutdown period and that um, he would just provide for, for everything that they need to continue serving this community. All right, well, that's it for announcements. I want to get into the word. We're in the Gospel of John together, and um, we are in chapter 3. If you want to turn in your Bible, go ahead and turn to chapter 3. We're going to be in verses 22 through 36 today. If you don't have a Bible, we got you covered. Of course, as always, the words will be on the screen. So let's read this passage. Um, like probably most of the rest of this series, we'll try to take big chunks. There'll be times when we uh, I'll give you uh, another 36 together. After this, Jesus and his disciples went to the Judean countryside where he spent time with them and baptized. John was also baptizing in Anon of Salim because there was plenty of water there. So this is desert country, so they had to be strategic in where they did things like baptism, so they found a place. People were coming and being baptized since John had not yet been thrown into prison. Then a dispute arose between John's disciples and a, and a Jew about purification. So they came to John and told him, Rabbi, the one you testified about and who was with you across the Jordan is baptizing, and everyone is going to him. John responded, no one can receive anything unless it has been given to him from heaven. You yourselves can testify that I said, I am not the Messiah, but I have been sent ahead of him. He who has the bride is the groom, but the groom's friend who stands by and listens for him rejoices greatly at the groom's voice. So this joy of mine is complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. Then we uh, get a bit of a summary at the end of this chapter of what's been going on so far in John's argument for who Jesus is. Verse 31 says, The one who comes from above is above all. The one who is from earth is earthly and speaks in earthly terms. The one who comes from heaven is above all. He testifies to what he has seen and heard, and yet no one accepts his testimony. The one who has accepted his testimony has affirmed that God is true. For the one whom God sent speaks God's words, since he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hands. The one who believes in the Son has eternal life, but the one who rejects the Son will not see life. Instead, the wrath of God remains on him. Let's pray. Father, this is your word, spoken in truth, 
to those who would hear it. Father, I pray that your spirit would accompany these words today and pierce our hearts and cause us to believe that Jesus is who the Bible says he is. And God, as we consider John, the launching of his public ministry, may, amen, humbled as we consider our role in your kingdom as well. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So I've said many times, uh, John, John's gospel is an argument. He's making a case for who Jesus is and what our response to him should be. At the end of John, in John chapter 20, verse 30, he says that he's the son of God and that by believing in him, we will have life. And so he's making that case. He's bringing forth witnesses. He's telling stories of the signs and of the miracles that Jesus did. He's building a, if you will, a courtroom case about who Jesus is. And so he has already brought forth as a witness John the Baptist, and there's something very significant that happens between John the Baptist and Jesus here in chapter 3. But then John ends this chapter in verses 31 through 36 by sort of summarizing his case so far. And so what I actually want to do is I want to take the first part of this text and I want to move it to the end of the sermon, and I want to focus on the end of this text here in the beginning of the sermon, and I think you'll see why we do that. It's, it really has to do with the argument that I want to make as we consider John's response, and I want our response to be in, uh, in response to who John says Jesus is. Again, two Johns in this passage. This is Really, the last time we'll have to deal with that in a significant way, John the Baptist will come up again once or twice, but not in a real significant way like this. You've got John the Baptist, and you've got John, the writer of the gospel, sometimes called John the Evangelist. Okay, so keep those two straight. This is a story about John the Baptist written by John the Evangelist. All right, so far, here's what we know about Jesus from John's gospel. This is what he's been arguing over the past two chapters uh, starting with this on your handout. Jesus is the new and better wine, or if you will understand it spiritually, covenant. We, one of the, the, the first things that John tells us about Jesus is this miraculous story where he turns the water into wine, and we spent a lot of time uh, during that sermon that week talking about the, the connection between Jesus' miracle and what he's saying about the covenant between God and man. And so Jesus is the new and better wine or covenant. Then we see that Jesus is the new and better temple. And that was the, the passage that Marty preached where uh, Jesus goes into the temple and he turns over the tables and he corrects what they're doing and then he basically announces himself as the new and better temple where God and man and the, the sin that separates them will be dealt with. His body will become the temple that makes the sacrifice for sins once and for all. So he's the new and better covenant. He's the new and better temple. Jesus brings the new and better life. I'm thinking back to the conversation that he had with Nicodemus uh, in, John, in the beginning of John chapter 3. Of course, the very famous verse, John 3.16, falls in the context of this, where he's, he's telling Nicodemus that in order to truly live, you must be born again. And so Jesus is bringing this new and better life. The life that we're naturally born into is insufficient. We must be born again into spiritual life. And so Jesus brings the new and better life. Now, here's where we find ourselves in the next part of John's argument is that Jesus is actually the new and better prophet or leader of Israel. Israel, as God's covenant people, are often spoken to and led by prophetic figures. John the Baptist is actually a prophet. He's actually one who has been sent from God in the power of the Spirit to deliver a message to God's people. And that message was to repent and be baptized and prepare themselves for the coming kingdom of God. What we're seeing take place, though, in this passage is that John's role as the prophet and for many, the leader of Israel, though he didn't have an official position in Israel's religious system, in fact, he was oftentimes at odds with Israel's religious leaders at, at the time, he really was the populist leader of Israel at the time. They were looking to John as a prophet. They were looking to him as a leader. And now John is passing the leader. 
I made sure I said, I don't mean that Jesus is not a prophet in every sense of the word, because he is. But he's more than a prophet. The, in fact, Islam acknowledges Jesus as a prophet, but not, does not acknowledge him as divine or as the son of God. And so we've got to, I just want to be clear that I'm not saying Jesus is just a prophet, but he is a prophet, and he's the new and better prophet. He's better than all of the prophets that came before him. We talked about that a little bit when we looked at the book of Hebrews a couple of sermons ago. He's better than all of the leaders of Israel that came before him. He is the new and better prophet leader. So with all of that in mind and what John is telling us about this Jesus, I want to look at verses 31 through 36 together. There's a couple of things I th- I see this as John sort of summarizing his argument to this point. He's kind of recapping and going back over some of the things that he wants to make sure. So John, very cleverly, he, he brings witnesses. He, he, he shows us signs and miracles that Jesus did, but he wants to make sure we're picking up what he's laying down. So he gets a little bit explicit at the end of chapter 3. And so there's some things that he says. The next thing's on your handout one is that Jesus comes from above and is above all. Jesus comes from above and is above all. We'll slow down a little bit and look at these one by one. I've got five things here at the end of of chapter three that John says about Jesus. Again, John the evangelist, the gospel writer. He comes from above and is above all. Verse 31. The one who comes from above is above all. The one who is from the earth is earthly and speaks in earthly terms. The one who comes from above is above all. So there's this idea that John, and I think John the Baptist is in mind here. I I could be wrong. It's not explicitly stated. I think John the Baptist is the, the, the earthly one who speaks in earthly terms. John the Baptist could only do so much. He only had so much information to work with because he was from the earth, because he was just like us. He was no different than, well, he was different than you and I. But in a sense, in his humanity, he was no different than you and I. And so the one who is from the earth speaks in earthly terms. Here's something unique about Jesus. He's not from the earth. He's not earthly. He comes from above and is above all. He's unique. John's making sure we didn't miss that in his argument so far. We're not, this is not a human, a mere human in the sense that you and I are mere humans. He takes on humanity, but he is from above, meaning heaven. He is from eternity. He is from from the, the, the realm that is beyond the realm that we exist in. He's from somewhere else. He's from above and is, is above all. Now that's significant because if, if he's going to bring the perspective of heaven, if he's going to bring this in eternity, something that John the Baptist or no other prophet could ever do is speak from the perspective of eternity to speak from the perspective of the divine. What makes Jesus unique is that he can speak of those things because that is his nature. That is where he is from. He is not like us. He has come to enlighten us, if you will. He has come to bring revelation to us that does not come from the earth. That's pretty important to know about Jesus. Also, John wants us to understand that Jesus' testimony is true. This is the next thing on the handout. Is true, but is still rejected by most. It's true, but it's rejected by most. Truth and acceptance of the masses don't always go hand in hand. This is how he says it in verse 30. Well, let me, let me give you a second. To, those blanks might go away if I start reading the text. So Jesus' testimony is true, but is still rejected by most. Okay, verse 32. He testifies to what he has seen and heard, and yet no one accepts his testimony. The one who has accepted his testimony has affirmed that God is true. So Jesus comes from another place, described here as above, simply as above, And he speaks of what he has seen and heard, 
from that perspective of eternity and that perspective of heaven, yet no one accepts his testimony. Now, John is speaking generally here. There were some who accepted his testimony, but by and large, people weren't hearing. They weren't believing. They weren't accepting Jesus' testimony. Uh, perhaps he has in mind, at the very least, the religious leaders. They're rejecting Jesus' testimony. But it's true. It's true. And if you believe that, it radically changes not only, not only what you believe about Jesus, but what you believe about the entire world. If you believe that, that the world should be viewed from the perspective of Jesus' testimony, that will set you at, against the way 95% of the world views the world. So if you've ever felt like, man, I, I just think of things differently than the people around me. Well, if you're thinking of things biblically, that's a good thing because you've believed what is true. You've accepted Jesus' testimony, and that's not something that, that is easy to come to. I think that's something that requires a bit of a miracle. It requires the miracle of regeneration. It requires the miracle of being born again. In order to believe Jesus and to accept his testimony, he has to cause us to be born again and to come to life and to see things according to his testimony according to his perspective. Now, we're speaking sort of generally and broadly here, but it's going to get very specific by the end of this when we talk about exactly what that means in, in terms of eternal life. So Jesus comes from above and is above. Jesus' testimony is true, but is still rejected by most. That was true then, and that's still true today, and it should, it should be our expectation that that will continue to be true. The next thing, though, is that Jesus, by the Father, he did not come. He did not come merely of his own will, but by the will of another. And the, the, the other whose will is involved is God the Father. And he has sent Jesus, and Jesus has obediently gone, not unwillingly. I don't mean to imply that Jesus did not want to go. I just want to highlight the fact of God's role, God the Father's role and his will in sending Jesus, and he's filled with the Spirit. And so we see all three members of the Trinity involved in Jesus' coming to earth to bring salvation. He's sent by the Father and filled with the Spirit. Verse 34, for the one whom God sent speaks God's words since he gives the Spirit without measure. Again, Jesus is the better and new prophet leader. This is what is better about him is that he is given the, one of the things that is better about him is that he is given the spirit without measure. All of the prophets and all of the leaders of Israel that came before Jesus re received the spirit according to uh, particular tasks and particular moments of leadership that were required of them as they served God. They did not receive the Spirit without measure. They received a portion of the Spirit to accomplish God's will. Jesus, uh, one thing that's unique about him and different about him is that the Spirit comes upon him, and as we're told at his baptism, uh, it comes upon him and does not leave him. Prior to this, the Spirit would come and go upon God's leaders. After this, not only does Jesus receive the fullness of the Spirit and that the Spirit never leaves him, but after this, he would actually send his Spirit to be upon his disciples, and the Spirit in the same way would never leave them, but dwell within them forever. So these are, again, these, perhaps we take these for granted. Perhaps some of these seem obvious, but John is making sure that we have not missed some very important things about Jesus. Let's pretend for a minute, I know most of us already believe the conclusion that Jesus is the Son of God and that by believing in him we'll have eternal life. Most of us already believe that, but let's pretend for a minute that we haven't yet come to that conclusion. Do you understand the argument that John is making? Jesus comes from above. His testimony is true. He's sent by the Father and filled with the Spirit. Next. Jesus is loved by the Father and given all things. He's loved by the Father and given all things. Verse 35 says, The Father loves the Son and has given all things 
into his hands. He's not only sent by the Father, he's loved by the Father. There are many aspects of God's character and of God's nature that we need to understand to have, a, I think, a full view of God. One of them is that God is holy and just and that he punishes sin. We need to understand that about God. Also, along with that, we need to understand that, he's, that we, if, if we focus solely on that, we could begin to develop the idea that perhaps God is just angry all of the time, and he's just upset about everything. The Bible also emphasizes God's love. And nowhere is God's love on greater display than in his relationship with the Son. God the Father loves God the Son. In ways that, no, okay, we'll very quickly get into something. We have no context for understanding. When we talk about the love between the, the, the triune Godhead, there's, I, I don't have a lot of references to point to that would even help us understand that, but let's just keep it super simple and understand how much the Father loves the Son. He loves the Son infinitely. He loves the Son completely. And the reason I emphasize that is because the, the gospel teaches us that God chooses to love you the same way he loves the Son. If he loves Jesus, he loves you. If he loves Jesus, if he loves Jesus infinitely, he loves you infinitely. That's the whole idea behind John 3.16. That he loves so much that he would send his son to die on your behalf. Jesus is loved by the Father and he's given all things. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. This kind of uh, relates back to, he's not only given the spirit without measure, but he's given, he's given authority, he's given rule over, he's, he's given the things of the, the universe, he has given uh, authority and he's given dominion, he has is, he is given power over all things. Jesus will allude to this after his resurrection when he goes to the disciples as recorded in the end of the book of Matthew, and he says, all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples. Jesus is sent by the Father, filled with the Spirit. He's loved by the Father, and he's given all things. John wants us to ask this very important question, who else could this be than God? Who else could this Jesus possibly be? And then he, he ends this passage with verse 36. Let me read the fill-ins before I read the, the verse. The fill-ins go like this. Jesus is the way to eternal life. He's the way to eternal life. Okay, so Jesus comes from above and is above. Jesus' testimony is true. He's sent by the Father and filled with the Spirit. And Jesus is loved by the Father and given all things. Jesus is the way to eternal life. That's a pretty solid argument for who Jesus is. And it's the argument that John has already begun making in the first three chapters and he's going to continue to make until the end of the book. He is the way to eternal life. If you understand everything about who Jesus is and accept those things, and if you believe that, that Jesus comes from the Father, that he's sent from the Father, filled by the Spirit, that he's loved by the Father, that he comes from above, he's not, he's not just simply of this world, but he has, he has come into this world from some, someplace else. If you believe that his testimony is true, but you, you stop short of believing that Jesus is the way to eternal life, then you've missed the point of the entire Gospel of John. It's not just about who Jesus is, but it's about what Jesus does. What he does is he gives eternal life. Verse 36, the one who believes in the Son has eternal life. But the one who rejects the Son will not see life. Instead, the wrath of God remains on him. A couple things come to mind. One, um, John, in one of his letters, I believe it's in 1 John somewhere, 
he'll say something very similar. He'll say, the one who has the Son has life. The one who does not have the Son does not have life. The, the message of Christianity and the message of the gospel is as simple as that when you boil it down. You have Jesus, you have life. You don't have Jesus, you don't have life. It, it, it's really that simple. The one who believes in the Son has eternal life. If you believe these things about Jesus and that you believe that what he did through his death and his burial and his resurrection was for you, for your sins, to reconcile you back to God, you have eternal life. If you reject that, the wrath of God remains on you. We talked about that a little bit last week when Jesus didn't come into the world to condemn the world. He didn't come to make us guilty. We're already guilty. What he did was he came into the world to save the world from the guilt that is already on us. And so we see very similar language here. Reject the son and you have no other way to remove the wrath of God from you. Jesus is the way to eternal life. Okay, so that's John's argument. That's what John is wanting to make sure. That's what he's laying down about Jesus so far. He's making sure that we're picking it up. He kind of summarizes his main points here at the end. But the, what, what this passage, what, what I want to focus on for, I guess, perhaps the second half here of the message is John the Baptist's role and response in all of this, because this is a fantastic story, and it's fantastic for at least three reasons that I'm going to mention. So let's go back to having sort of summarized John, the evangelist's argument about Jesus and who he is and how we come to believe and have eternal life. Let's look at John the Baptist and what happens with him here, because I think it's really interesting. Chapter, or verse 22, I'm sorry. After this, Jesus and his disciples went to the Judean countryside where he spent time with them and baptized. John was also was baptizing in Anon near Selene because there was plenty of water there. People were coming and being baptized since John had not yet been thrown into prison. John's given us a, um, a timeline marker here because in the, in the other three gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, most of Jesus's ministry happens after, well, uh, happens after John has been thrown, John the Baptist has been thrown into prison. So, so John's letting us know, and this is significant for his gospel up to this point, that all of these things that have happened so far have happened before John the Baptist's purification. So they came to John and told him, Rabbi, the one you testified about who is with you across the Jordan is baptizing, and everyone is going to him. Now, there might be a, a few different ways that we could understand this statement. John's response, I think, is going to indicate that they're a little bit concerned, perhaps a little bit indignant. They're like, they have, you have to understand, when we think of this story, it's obvious to us Jesus deserves center stage. But they didn't have that same perspective because up until then, John the Baptist had center stage. He was the prophet leader. He was the one that people were looking to. Jesus, John had alluded to Jesus. He had spoken of Jesus. And Jesus is starting to gain some popularity. But in their mind, this, he's in competition with the one who is to be the leader, John the Baptist. And so they, they're, they're, they see that Jesus is gaining followers. Rabbi, the one you testified about and who was with you across the Jordan is baptizing. And everyone's going to him. What's John the Baptist going to do? He has, he's received a call from God, a mission. He has radically invested himself in that. He has given everything every part of his life over to this ministry, if you will. And now someone who has come along who is threatening, if you will, to take away from what he has built, what he has achieved, and what he has accomplished so far. He's popular. He's famous, actually. People are following him. People are getting behind him. People want to hear what he has to say next. People want to see what he's going to do next. He's, John the Baptist is out here living his best life. He's, he's achieving, uh, he's living the dream that he had for his life. How's he going to respond? Verse 27, John responded, 
No one can receive anything unless it has been given to him from heaven. You yourselves can testify that I said I am not the Messiah, but I've been sent ahead of him. He who has the bride is the groom, but the groom's friend who stands by and listens for him rejoices greatly at the groom's voice. So this joy of mine is complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. John the Baptist is the real deal. He's the real deal. There's no, there's no need to question his motives. There's no need to question who he really serves. Because here's the thing, guys. In life and in particularly in ministry, we can do a lot of things that seem to be serving somebody else. In this case, particularly Jesus. But what we're really doing is serving ourselves. And when that is revealed is when we are threatened with the loss that it's revealed whether we are truly serving another or whether we are serving ourselves. It is possible. It it would have been possible for John the Baptist to be using this Jesus message, this kingdom of heaven message to actually serve his own interests and his own desires. And had that been the case, in this moment, he would have failed miserably. And in our own lives, we face similar challenges to our own hearts and our own motives. Let me just make this explicitly about Christian living and Christian ministry. In your service to Jesus, in your, let's say, volunteering for ministry or your going into even vocational ministry, are you using what the church might have to offer to you to serve yourself or have you truly surrendered yourself to serving Jesus Christ, the King and Lord of all? That's a heart question that needs to be answered correctly. John proves himself to be the real deal. And I'm going to put it in three separate ways for you here. Here's how he proves himself to be the real deal. These are on the handout. These are sort of the main three points that I want to get off. I know there's a, a lot of points Uh, on that outline because I wanted to make sure we weren't missing all of those things that have happened so far. But here's really what I want us to leave here today thinking about these three things. One, John contented himself with God's sovereignty over his life and ministry. He contented himself with God's sovereignty over his life and ministry. And he, he reflects that in verse 27. I paused before I read verse 27 earlier because I really wanted it to sink in. And I'll be honest, I'm I'm not just wanting this for you. I'm wanting wanting this for myself because I'm, I'm probably safe to say I'm as invested in this as anybody else in the room here today, right? And so these are important things to think about for all of us and especially for me. In verse 27, before we got to his response, it was this lingering thought like, hey, John, Jesus is taking people away from us. We've grown this little following and Jesus is threatening to to end it. People are turning to him instead. John responds, no one can receive anything unless it has been given to him from heaven. You yourselves can testify that I said I am not the Messiah, but I've been sent ahead of him. You see, John knows he cannot gain anything that heaven would not give him. And he knew his role, and he accepted his role in God's plan of redemption. It was not to get people to look to him. And so... He embraces this. Not only does he embrace it, he rejoices. And I don't want to get ahead of myself, but 
obviously in his response, there's joy. Your ministry's coming to an end, John. It won't be much longer that anybody is following you. Nobody is going to care anymore what you have to say. In fact, he's not even going to live very long. We'll get to that in a minute. Your ministry is ending, John. To God be the glory. I was here to prepare people to see Jesus. I was here to point people to the coming Messiah. And now that he's here, all eyes on him. And so here's my encouragement in this. And it's not just his ministry, it's his life. We'll see that in a second. If you are doing what God has called you to do, be content with what you have. If you are doing what God has called, if you're not doing what God has called you to do, prayerfully make that change. That's, that's implied, right? But if you are doing what God has called you to do, be content. Accept what heaven has given you and accept what heaven has withheld from you. You are not the Messiah. You are not the one that people need in their life. It's not you. It's Jesus. In fact, the Bible tells us that our God is a jealous God. That means he does not deal kindly with people that get in between him and the people that he loves. And we see many examples of that throughout history and throughout Scripture. You don't want to be in between God and someone he loves and in the way. You can be a conduit of his love to people. You can, you can be a representative of God and his love to other people, but you do not want to be in the way. You do not want to build people's dependence upon you. You want to help them learn how to depend on him. And that's true for all of us. But contentment is not apathy. John the Baptist was not inactive in ministry. He didn't say, well, hey, this, we can take this too far. We can become apathetic in our efforts to lead and to do ministry and to, to build the kingdom of God. We can say, well, hey, it is what it is. What, whatever's going to be is, is, is meant to be. It's not, it's not that type of apathy. It's not, I don't have anything to do because I can only receive what heaven gives me. He's out there working. John's out here grinding daily, helping prepare the way for the Messiah. He's doing what God has called him to do. I love, I, I've heard it many times. I love the saying, work like an Arminian, but sleep like a Calvinist. And if you don't know what that means, that's okay. I'm not going to try to explain it right now. But work as if everything depends on you, and then rest as if everything depends on God. Because in a sense, both are true. God's going to do what he's going to do, and he's going to do it through the obedience of his people. So if you're doing what God has called you to do, be content. John contented himself with God's sovereignty over his life and his ministry. He did everything that he could to be faithful. He did everything he could to faithfully serve and to work. He applied himself to this mission. He applied himself to this ministry, and then he said, it's God's kingdom. I know my place. I know my role, and I'll be content with what he gives me. All right, that's the first one. The next one is this. John rejoiced in seeing Jesus gain his bride. He rejoiced in seeing Jesus gain his bride. It gives him great joy for people to connect to Jesus. That was his life's mission. That was his purpose. That's what he sought to do. Verse 29 says, he who, is, he who has the bride is the groom. So he uses a, a very significant analogy here, an analogy that extends throughout the New Testament. It actually extends backward, I, I think, at times into the old listens for him rejoices greatly at the groom's voice. So this joy of mine is complete. He rejoiced in seeing Jesus gain his bride. Jesus is the groom. His bride are the people who will believe in him. And he rejoices in seeing that. Now, he, he places himself in the story. He refers to himself as the groom's friend. You, a, a lot of times, this is 
interpreted and, and always understood to be like a best man in a wedding, like somebody closely connected to the groom, somebody involved in this. And, and, and in that time and in that culture, the best man had an incredible amount of responsibility in preparing the wedding uh, ceremony and the feast. And the best man had a lot of responsibility to ensure that the wedding went well. Now, our culture is the complete opposite of that. Um, the best man is often the biggest idiot and the least competent person in the room, and that's usually on display at the best man's speech at the at the reception. But um, it, it, you know, I, I've done I've done probably 75, 80 weddings. Okay, and uh, so I speak from experience with authority on this. The 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 best man at most is given the rings, and that is usually like. 30 seconds before the ceremony. Like, he doesn't even, like, have responsibility before that, right? And then, you know, and, and I'm doing my thing, and I'm like, hey, may I please have the rings? And you always get that, oh, no, was I supposed to have, you know, there's, like, this obligatory joke that the best man has to do. And that's it for the best man. He has no real responsibility. But John the Baptist is, is comparing himself to the best man, he's, but he's doing that in a culture where, where, the best man is invested in the groom's joy. And can you imagine a best man who wanted to take the bride from the groom? I mean, imagine if you've been to many weddings as well. You know that moment where everybody has taken their place up front, the wedding party is in place, and the only person left to enter is the bride. And it's it's the most memorable part of every wedding ceremony. And everybody stands up and everybody turns and the music changes. And the groom sees for the first time his bride on her wedding day. At that point, the best man's job is done. He's done. He did what he was supposed to do to prepare. I'm speaking in their culture, not ours. Now it's all about the joy between the groom and his bride. That was his role. His job was to get them to this point. And now his job is to rejoice. That's not his bride. That's, she's not there for him. She's there for her groom. And so it is with Jesus and his people. And so it is with Jesus and those who would minister in his kingdom. Our role is to rejoice at seeing the bride and the groom united. Our role is to make it our joy to do. That's what we're supposed to rejoice in, in seeing Jesus gain his bride. I'll tell you a quick, uh, quick story. I sat uh, just in the, in the room next door earlier this week um, with a fellow pastor from the community and um, we were talking about the relationship that pastors have with one another when they minister in the same community. And um, there's, there's, a, there's a little bit of, uh, it, get, it can get territorial and it can get sort of competitive. You know, the reality is we know only so many people from any community are going to go to a church and we all want them to come to our church. Right. And so we it can get a little bit competitive. And I was so encouraged as I sat there having lunch at the cafe and this and this brother in Christ, this fellow minister, uh, just teared up with joy because Redemption Church is here. Because he said he knows so many people in Lower Borough that he wants to see walking with Jesus. Isn't that awesome? That's like, I mean, that's, that's John the Baptist type stuff, man. It's not my bride. I rejoice in seeing the groom and the bride. I rejoice in seeing Jesus gain his bride. That's the way we all need to be. It's not about us. It's not about, it's not about our success. It's not about anything, um, you know, whatever your role is in the kingdom. It's not about you getting the glory and you getting the attention and, and you getting the acclaim. It's about Jesus gaining his bride. So make it your joy to preach the gospel and point others to Jesus. Thirdly, G John gave himself wholly to Jesus. 
He gave himself wholly to Jesus. Verse 30, he must increase, but I must decrease. These are the most famous words of John the Baptist. It's because he gave himself completely to Jesus. At the end of the day, when, when, when he hears the voice of the groom, he knows his job is done and it's time to step aside. And he knows it's time for the groom to gain his bride and he does it with joy. John the Baptist didn't live much longer than this. I don't know exactly how long because we don't know exactly when this happened. But Jesus' earthly ministry only spanned a couple of years. And from this, from this time, which Jesus is already into his earthly ministry, and well before Jesus' death, if I understand it correctly, John the Baptist is beheaded. He got involved. Uh, he was arrested uh, because of his unpopularity with the leaders, even though he's very popular with the people. Um, and he kind of got involved in a political game where Herod had him beheaded and his head placed on a platter. Not a great way to honor somebody who has served faithfully in the kingdom of God. We all hope to go out a little bit better than that. Uh, but he didn't live much longer, and so he had accomplished what God had placed him on earth to do. And he joyfully stepped aside, knowing that he had given himself wholly to Jesus. To give yourself wholly to Jesus not only means to accept what he gives you in response to your efforts in serving him, but it means to accept that he has complete sovereign control over your life and that he is free to do with your life as he sees best. What's one of the more difficult things for us to understand is that sometimes Jesus sees best to cut short the life of those who have faithfully served him. It's never easy to understand from this side of heaven that someone who is faithful to the Lord and valuable to the kingdom comes to an untimely end. But if we are to give ourselves that perhaps we don't get to live long, that perhaps we might suffer physically in ways that we don't want to and don't think is fair. We would accept that perhaps our, our ministry and our service to the Lord, as we now know it, could be radically changed at any moment in an infinite number of ways. I'm thinking of, I think of people who, uh, people who have been involved in perhaps tragic accidents and become quadriplegics, or people that become uh, really just incapacitated in their ability to do the ministry they once did by any number of physical problems or even, even emotional and psychological problems. I touched base with a family member late last night who I hadn't spoken to in years. Um, she's, she's pretty well advanced in years now, but she was growing up. Uh, she was a great example to me of Christian faithfulness and of love for the Lord. And I've, I've heard over the last few years that mentally she has really declined into a state of just perpetual anxiety. And my conversation with her last night confirmed that. Unable to serve the Lord as she did for so many years. To give ourselves wholly to Jesus, we accept even that. We will not gain anything that heaven doesn't give us. And our lives are in his hands to see to do what he sees fit with them. And so I end with the words that are attributed to a man named Count Zinzendorf, who was an Austrian nobleman in the 1700s. He was born into nobility, born into great privilege, had the opportunity to, to live an esteemed life in the public eye. 
but was so consumed with the need for the gospel to go forth that really, instead of pursuing, um, let's say, public gain and popularity, made it his aim to spread the gospel, was a huge part of helping start the Protestant mission movement. And he's attributed these words, a man who could have been great in the eyes of the world, but instead chose to serve Jesus, he said this, preach the gospel, die and be forgotten. Preach the gospel, die and be forgotten. Let's pray. Jesus, you are our Savior. John the Baptist is our example today. Our lives are in your hands. Our mission is whatever you give us to do for your kingdom. We live in a world that it insists on living life on their own terms, insists and demands health and longevity. But the people who have made the greatest impact for your kingdom have most often had none of those things. Most often were the ones who simply contented themselves with your sovereignty over their life, who rejoiced in seeing you gain your bride and who gave themselves wholly, without reservation, without any strings attached to doing your will. And so you must increase, Lord Jesus, and we must decrease. May you be glorified. And may some of these 150,000 people who sit right now within 20 minutes of where we are hear the gospel and be saved and given eternal life. It's in your name we pray and for your glory we ask it. In Jesus' name, amen.